Well, good morning. Good morning. And uh, how do I direct this? <laughs> okay. I'm going to be calling on our vast group here this morning. No, not really. Um, let's just begin with a bit of the word from Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I ask you to bless this time now as we look to this beautiful and wonderful doctrine of who you are, God, the Holy Trinity. Um, give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I think last time I, uh, we got into some things on the Trinity, and so I decided to just do this lesson specifically on the doctrine of the Trinity. And it has been a tremendous encouragement to me to look into this wonderful doctrine of who God is. Um, it's really something that I hope we all can spend time meditating on and thinking about who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. Um, Jonathan Edwards, I wanted to read a quick quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, Sometimes only mentioning a single word calls my heart to burn within me, or only seeing the name of Christ or the name of some attribute of God, and God has appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me have exalting thoughts of God, that he subsists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The sweetest joys and delights I have experienced have not been those that have arisen from a hope of my own good estate, but in a direct view of the glorious things of the gospel. Once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man. In his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. I thought, wow, what a... Have you ever been just overwhelmed with your thought of who God is, who Jesus Christ, that he would enter this world for us and die for us? It's such a, a beautiful thing to contemplate. And I hope as we go through this that we will continue to just think about the greatness and majesty of who God is. 
revealed to us in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I hope, I hope this all just encourages us tremendously as we look at this beautiful doctrine. So a basic, to begin with just a basic definition of the doctrine of the Trinity, it says, within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Basic definition here. The key points to recognize in this are three foundations, as I have in this little chart. We are monotheist, right? As Christians, we are monotheist. Actually, one of only three monotheistic <laughs> religions, really, and that is Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Pretty much every other religion is a polytheistic religion, but we are monotheist, and it's very important that we hold to that truth. The second foundation, there are three divine persons within the one God. And thirdly, the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Does that make sense? This is a basic foundation truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I have this little graph here, this little triangle, um, which points out how when we go away from those three foundations, we tend to fall into different heresies. And so if you look, the sides of this uh, the triangle are the truths. We are monotheistic. There are three persons in the Trinity and, they, and the equality of the three persons. As you go away towards the points from these foundations, you enter into heresy. So from monotheism, if you go away from monotheism, of course you get into polytheism. And again, almost every religion known to man, if you go back to the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, or all polytheistic religions, they believed in a bunch of different gods. And even today, some of the pseudo-Christian religions like Mormonism is a polytheistic religion. They believe in multiple gods. They believe we can become a god. And so that's heresy when you go away from monotheism. When you go away from from Three persons, you get into, we talked about this modalism. Last time I mentioned uh, that was a very early heresy known as Sabellianism. This guy Sabellianus taught that God appeared in three modes. He wasn't three distinct persons, but just appeared in three modes. And then if you go away from the equality, you get out to subordinationism. That meaning that, so if the Father, Son, and Spirit are not equal, then you end up having a Christ is subordinate to the Father. So he's, as we were talking about origin last time, origin thought Jesus was not quite as much God as the Father was, and the Holy Spirit was a little bit less. Are you completely throw out the deity of Christ as the Jehovah's Witness do and other false religions? They throw out, and, and typically the biggest attacks on the Trinity is on the deity of Christ and on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So the Jehovah's Witness think of the Holy Spirit as just a force, but not an actual person. But we'll get into that. Hopefully I have time to get into that. That'll be the last part I cover. But these are the three main points, the three main foundations that this doctrine of the Trinity are built upon. And so I want to look at these several things. I mean, it should go without saying that we are monotheistic, but let's look at a few passages of Scripture. Isaiah 40 
So if you're in 46, just turn back a little bit, verses 13 through 18. And he says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Our being his counselor hath taught him, with whom he took counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed him his way of understanding. These are rhetorical questions asking of God. Who taught God anything? Obviously nobody, because he is above all. Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket, and are counted as small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? What likeness will ye compare him to? There is no one like God. Right? There is one God, and he is above all. Psalm 113, real quick. Oops. If I can get there. And these kind of passages are all over the Bible. Um, and I'm barely even going to scratch the surface. Verse 5. Who is like unto the Lord our God dwelling on the earth? There is no one like our God. If you look in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, a wonderful passage. Verses 4 through 6 says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And there is none other, and there, there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are gods, as there be gods many and lords many, we're talking about the false gods. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we by him. And the interesting thing about that passage is that he is equating Lord and God here. So when he says there is one God, the Father, and he says one Lord, Jesus Christ, he's the. Um, it would be recognized, especially to the Jews, that Lord and God are equivalent. They are the same. Over and over in the Old Testament, you see, my Lord and God. And uh, so there is no Lord but God. And so this actually is speaking to the deity of Christ. And I wanted to look at something B.B. Warfield said um, about this passage. He said, In the very act of asserting his monotheism, Paul takes our Lord up into the unique Godhead. There is no God but one, he, re, he, he roundly asserts, and then illustrates and proves this assertion by remarking that the heathen may have gods many and lords many, but to us there is one God, the Father, of whom, all, of whom are all things, and we unto him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and we through him, Obviously, this one God, the Father, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ are embraced together in the one God who alone is. Paul's conception of the one God whom alone he worships includes, in other words, a recognition that within the unity of this being, there exists such a distinction of persons as is given us in the one God, the Father, and the one Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's, again, the point he is making, there is one God, but there exists these two persons, the Father and Son, within that Godhead. And that, that's actually a, a powerful statement Paul makes there in uh, 1 Corinthians there. Um, one other passage, and this is, this is truly fascinating to me, in Jeremiah. And I actually took a screenshot. This is, um, this is from the LSB because it puts it in the poetic form. You see, you have the poetic form, and then you go back to prose form, and then the, the poetic form again. And um, you know it's LSB because of the Yahweh. It uses Yahweh, which is it's the same as a 1995 NASB, but John MacArthur and the Master's College updated it to um, basically change wherever it, you normally would say LORD in all caps, it just says Yahweh. But anyway, the point about this is this passage is, is directed towards Babylon. And what he's saying is saying all your gods are false. And then when he gets to this verse right here, we know that the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, right? Have you ever heard that some parts of it are written in Aramaic? This verse is written in Aramaic. This one verse. And why does he do this? This is absolutely fascinating to me. What does he say? He's talking about how only Yahweh is the true God and your gods are all false. But then he says, thus you shall say to them... And he even puts it in the language of the Babylonians in Aramaic and says, you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. He specifically puts it in the language of the Babylonians to say, your God is false and there is only one true God. And I just think, wow, that is so awesome to think. God wants to communicate who he is to all of us, and specifically to the Babylonians here, he's saying, look, there is only one true God, and I am him. I just find this completely fascinating that he would do that. And there's a few other places in, in Scripture where it'll go to the Aramaic. Anyway, I hope y'all think that's interesting. I think it's really interesting. All right. So, I want to dig in now to... Uh, to John. Let me, let me back up. Let me just read this real quick. God provides his people with the very words to say to those who would lead them after other gods. Unless those gods created the heaven and earth, they will perish from the earth. And that's what that was saying in this passage here. Um, it says, the irony of a God perishing is meant to point out the foolishness of making a God out of anyone but the creator himself. So they're making gods out of these, you know, wood, stone, metal. It's utter foolishness. And even he makes the point saying, your God will perish. Well, if you're truly a God, you're not going to perish, right? You're, Im <laughs> you're imperishable. Anyway, it is, it is truly fascinating 
to look at that. Okay, so maybe the greatest um, description of the deity of Christ is found in, in John. And I, as I've dug into this, it's truly blown me away understanding um, what John says and how he was led by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more in this, and I have. The Greek, has, been, has anybody ever taken basic Greek? If you ever take basic Greek, you almost always start here. In arcane, ein ho logos, kai ho logos, ein proston theon, kai theos, ein ho logos. What does that say? You should recognize the logos and theos, right? In the beginning, arcane, was the word, and the word was God, prostone. Um, we'll get into some of these participles and things. And, and the, I'm sorry, and the word was with God, pros, and the word was God. Now, the order here you see, kai, theos, ein ho logos, is not in the order we would say it. But I'm going to get to why we translate it and the word was God and not and the God was the word. It's, it's actually um, something very important about that. I'll get to that in a minute. So what is he saying here? Um, actually, before I get into that, I, I, I missed something here. When you're looking at the three in one, um, we have to understand that they have, there is a difference, a difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. A difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. Does that make sense? A common argument against the deity of Christ um, is that the Father is the creator of all things. He creates through Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus Christ is not fully God. He's, he's lower, right? This is an argument that Jehovah's Witness will make. Or about the Spirit, one of the arguments is, the Spirit is sent to testify of Jesus Christ and convict the world of sin. Since the Spirit is sent by the Father, then the Spirit can't be truly God. So it's, it's not understanding this difference in function does not indicate an inferiority of nature. Both of these arguments share the same error. They ignore the above truth that I just made. The difference in function does not indicate an inferiority of nature. That is, just because the Father, Son, and Spirit do different things does not mean that any one of them is inferior to the other in nature. Does that make sense? Back up so you're not going to get distracted by that. <laughs> this is, um, we get into something called the e eternal covenant of redemption. The eternal covenant of your redemption. You might write that down if you want to. Which says, in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit voluntarily and freely chose the roles they would take in bringing about the redemption of God's people. The Father chose to be the fount and source of eternity, of, of the entirety of the work. The Son chose to be the Redeemer and to enter into human flesh as one subject to the Father. And the Spirit chose to be the sanctifier of the church, the indwelling testifier of Jesus Christ. Each took different roles of necessity. They could not all take the same role and do the same things. So they're all God, but they're taking on different roles within the Godhead. 
Most arguments against the deity of Christ and the Trinity make a false assumption that for either the, the Son or the Spirit to be truly and fully God, they have to do the exact same things as the Father in the exact same way. That is, they assume there cannot possibly be any differentiation in the persons of the Trinity without introducing an automatic inferiority on the part of those who do something different than the Father. They assume a Unitarian view of God as opposed to a Trinitarian view and assume that God could never do what he has revealed he has done in the work of redemption. Those who deny the Trinity assume that Yahweh is unipersonal or Unitarian and then use that assumption to attack and deny all evidence to the contrary. We must keep in mind when evaluating the passages that describe the Lord Jesus Christ as God, even while distinguishing him from the Father. I hope I kind of read a bit of that. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, so now on to John. This beautiful, wonderful passage, verses 1 through 18. He begins with, in the beginning, which sounds a lot like Genesis 1. In the beginning, just as in Genesis, God's work of creation begins, in John 1.1, he introduces God's work of redeeming the people. And that work has been going on just as long as creation itself. In the beginning, whoops, in the beginning was the word, logos. John is using the word logos, or the word, as a name, not merely a description here. He fills the impersonal logos that the Greeks, the word logos in Greek was very impersonal, the Greek philosophers. But he fills it with personality and life. The Hebrews actually thought, did not, the word used, used for word in Hebrew, you think about in the Old Testament and say, by his word, he created the heavens. Or there's multiple places where it says, by his word, he did this. So in Hebrew, the Hebrews thought of the word as, um, as full of life and personality so he fills the impersonal logos that came before him with personality and life and presents to us the living and personal logos, the word who was in the beginning. And from verses 1 to 18, John is telling us all about the word. So what is he attempting to communicate? John uses two verbs, and this is really, really fascinating to me. He uses two verbs in the Greek. Um, when speaking of the Logos, as he existed in eternity past, John uses the Greek word ain. That's this little one right here. Ain uses this Greek word ain. And the tense of the word expresses a continuous action in the past. If you compare this to the verb he chooses when speaking of everything else, found in verse 4, for example, egeneto, which says all things were made, so it's was versus were made, it's actually one word, by him. So all things were made by him. It's a different verb there. The verb contains the very, this word, egoneto, it contains the very element missing from the other, a point of origin. 
So the term, when used in context of creation and origin, speaks of a time when something came into existence. The verb aim does not. And every time he talks about the word logos, the word he uses aim. This is, you don't get this from reading just the word was in English. It is actually a, a, has deep meaning that John was seeking to communicate that the word is eternal just by that little verb. The word does not come into existence at the beginning, but it already, it is already in existence when the beginning takes place. Is that awesome? Just from one little verb there. He was with God. The word, that is the logos, was not alone in eternity past. Hologos ein pros ton theon. What does it mean that the word has been with God in eternity past? And here's another really interesting. He uses the preposition pros. And by the way, in Greek, the rho, it looks like a P, actually is the, an English R and pi. You should know pi if you do math, right? Joseph, you do math. Pi is a P, so pros. This little preposition pros it can have a wide range of meanings depending on the context. In this particular instance, the term speaks to a personal relationship. In fact, to intimacy. It's the same preposition used in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says that we now see in a dimly in a mirror. And he says, but someday we shall see God face to face. That's the preposition, that's the, the preposition pros used there, that we will see God face to face. So what is he saying? That the word is face to face with God. Well, who is that? That's the Father. The word, Jesus, is face to face with the Father. The word um, for God used here is the monotheistic God, Theos, right? This is, there is no polytheism found in this passage anywhere. It's using the term Theos or Theon, which is the normal term for a monotheistic God. So he says, was God, theos in ho logos. Um, here's another little interesting tidbit about the Greek. The Greeks use the article, the article, and you know what an article is? Anybody study English? I didn't even know what an article was, so I started studying Greek. There's a the, the and an are articles, right? Indefinite and definite articles. Well, the Greek articles were much more impactful they, than English articles. The Greeks use the articles to communicate to us which word is the subject and which is the predicate. So now you get to understanding the order here. If one of the two nouns has the article, it is the subject. In this case, the word has the article. That's ho. The little o, ho, logos, has the article. Even though it comes after God, theos, it is hence our subject. So the word was God. That's why it's translated that way, rather than God was the word, which is the order. In Greek, the word order didn't always matter. And what mattered is where that article was. And God was the word, but since the article is in front of here, in English we say, the word was God. Does that make sense? I, this fascinates me. I, I mean, y'all are looking like you're sleepy, but this really fascinates me because John is communicating a beautiful thing in here 
about who Jesus is, who the Word is. Um, let's see, where was I? He was God. Okay, so what's interesting here, if both or neither of the words have the article, he would be saying God was the Word and the Word was God. And this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses do in the New World Translation. They mess it up. F.F. Um, F. he stated, The structure of the third clause in verse 1, Theos in Hologos, demands the translation that God, the word was God. Since Logos has the article preceding it, it is marked out as the subject. The fact that Theos is the first word after the conjunction chi, which is and, shows that the main emphasis of the clause lies on it. Had Theos as well as Logos been preceded by the article, the meaning would have been that the word was completely identical with God, which is impossible if the word was also with God. John is very, very careful in how he arranges these sentences. What is meant is that the word shared the nature and being of God or uh, to put or to use a piece of modern jargon was an extension of the personality of God. He says that this could be paraphrased what God was, the word was. If he said he's, he's not saying all of the word equals all of God, right? That's what he's very careful to not communicate. All right. Enough of articles and prepositions and, and things. Makes me want to learn English better. I are an engineer. So in summary, John 1.1 is making the point that the Word is eternal, the Word is personal, and the Word is deity. It goes on and says uh, he is is the creator. In verse 2, he goes on to tell us that all things came into being through him, that is the Logos, Logos, And nothing came into being apart from him. And here is a phrase that can only be used of the one true God. Because creation is always God's work. If the Logos created all things, then the Logos is fully divine. He created all things. And then when you, as you keep going through this passage, you get down to verse 14, where eternity invades time. The word was made flesh, and this is the first time it uses that verb, egoneto, referring to the logos. And why? Because it is used at the incarnation. The word became flesh. The logos became flesh. The word was not flesh before he came into the other. He was still, he was spirit. But in verse 14, the word became flesh The Word, the Creator of all things, the Eternal One, became flesh. And that is a truly profound statement. How often do we think about that? Hopefully, we are never ceased to be amazed that God became flesh. He came to us as a human. That that really should knock our socks off when we think about that God became human. So this, um, the one thing to uh, 
to recognize one more thing in the Greek here. I don't think I put a slide up on it, but when he says, he uses in verse 14, the only begotten of the Father. The word only begotten is the Greek word uh, monogenes. You see the word mono, monogenes. Um, we see that a couple times in this passage. The term does not necessarily refer to begotten, but to uniqueness. He is the unique one of the Father. And while it's, it's often translated the only begotten, it can be better translated the unique or the one of a kind. Um, so this is the first time that John speaks of the Father in this passage. Before this, he's always used just God and Logos. And he differentiates the Father from the Logos here. The one and only. Monogenes. Clearly directing us to two persons. The one coming from the other. The monogenes coming from the Father. Yet the Logos is seen to have glory in this passage. And if you have, if you have your Bible open to 14, you'll, you'll see that. Um, what was that? Air condition just stopped and made a loud noise. Um, so, let's see, where was I? The Logos has glory, and to have a divine origin with the Father, and is said to be full of grace and truth. And this is actually a beautiful statement, because as John moves on to note the testimony of John the Baptist in verse 15, he makes it clear when he says he is speaking of Jesus Christ, is full of grace and truth. So before he was talking about the word being full of grace and truth, and finally he clearly says, and Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth, linking the two here that the word was Jesus Christ. And then finally we get to verse 18. And... Uh, this, John uses what is known as the bookend technique. And he provides a closing statement that sums up and repeats it in a different form what he said in the introduction. Now, if you remember um, when I was talking about Irenaeus, Irenaeus uses God here, the only be, as the NASB says, only begotten God, where, and... Irenaeus quoted that second century pastor quoted only begotten God. And that's the way NASB translates it. But see, ESV translates it, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. And actually the CSV, I think, is maybe the most accurate and most clear because what it says, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son. Here again, this is monogenes who is himself God and is at the Father's right side, he has revealed him. This is this bookend when he was, when he, he began with making the statement that the word was God and he closes it with the statement, monogenes theos, which is simply saying the one and only son is God. The key so this passage is found in verse 18 specifically when it says, who is at the Father's side? When John says, no one has seen God at any time, he is referring to the Father. So no one has seen the Father. No man has seen the Father at any time. 
So how do we know, so how do we have knowledge of the Father? Because the monogenes has made him known or declared him or revealed him or explained him. The unique one has made the Father known. Or in light of the use of the term Father here, the only Son has revealed the Father. But this is not merely a dim reflection or a partial revelation provided by the only Son. This is the monogenes theos, the only Son who is God. The divine nature of the monogenes is again plainly asserted just as it was in verse 1, this is what forms the bookend. The assertion in verse 1 that the Legos, the Logos, is divine, repeated and reaffirmed here in verse 18 with the statement that the only Son is God. And what's so neat is this explains the Old Testament because it begs the question, if no one has seen the Father, then who did Isaiah see in Isaiah 6? And who walked with Abraham by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18? It was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who has revealed the Father. And I get chills just thinking about that. And there are many passages in the Old Testament that are known as, what is it, Christopiphanies? Is that the right word? Am I making that up? I might be making that up. <laughs> but where Jesus, the only son, is seen in the, in, in the Old Testament. And so a few more passages I wanted to look at that clearly teach, and we looked at this when I was talking about origin, that clearly declare the deity of Christ. And again, I'm going to look at the LSB because it's so much more clear here. In Romans 9, 5, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is God overall? Blessed forever. Now in other translations, it'll say, who is overall God blessed forever, but it's more accurate is actually, this is a, a description that Jesus is God, who is God overall blessed forever. And a couple more, and I, I talked about these, and this one, I'm going to get back to Greek again because this is so much fun. In 1 Peter 1, um, you have, this, or it's 2 Peter 1, it has a statement King James says, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's better to not put that second R in there, our God and our Savior. It is much better to say our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And look at this. This is a comparison of 1 Peter 1.1, our 2 Peter 1.1 and 2 Peter 1.11. So just a few verses down. Look at the Greek. Tone in 1, it's theos. In 11, it's kurios or kurio which is Lord, and that's God. Uh, hemo, hemon, kai, um, soterios, which we get the word uh, soteriology. Yesu Christo, Jesus Christ. Look, it's the exact same words, except for theo and curio. And so that's why most translations are the exact same, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For some reason, King James adds or there. But it's the same exact Greek, except for those two words. And so the best translation truly is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, speaking of Jesus Christ. 
That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then it's very similar in Titus um, 2. Here we have uh, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, when I'm defending the deity of Christ, I'm typically going to go with something like an LSB because it so much more clearly articulates the deity of Christ there. Anyway, I, f- I find that pretty pretty cool about the, the Greek there. It's the exact same words. <laughs> okay, so maybe in the last five minutes, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. So do you agree with me that Jesus Christ is God? He existed eternally, a different person from the Father, yet he is God. And I, hopefully that, that walking through 1 John, he was so careful to articulate using the very exact right prepositions and articles to communicate this beautiful truth that the Word, who is Jesus Christ, eternally existed and is God. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gets a lot less discussion, right? Um, again, it's, if the heresy that's typically with the Holy Spirit is that he's not, is denying the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But what is so cool, and it's easy to just kind of gloss over it when we read these passages, the Bible uses personal pronouns referring to the Holy Spirit. You don't use personal pronouns if it's an it. And in fact, in the, the, the New World Translation, they purposely remove the personal pronouns. Let me see real, real quick. Matthew 3. Uh, Matthew 3.11. It says, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young, wait, oh, that's chapter two, sorry, 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. In the New World Translation, they take out the with Holy Ghost. So it reads, he shall baptize you with Holy Ghost and with fire. They removed the article in the New World Chant purposely to deny the personhood of the Spirit. But it is very clear all throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is spoken of in, with um, personal pronouns. Look at Acts 9, what is it, 10? Acts 10... Really quickly run over there. Let me find it. Acts 10, 19. While Peter thought of the vision, the Holy Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men sit there. So the Holy Spirit spoke again using action. So, um, and we'll just run through these. So Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit as a person in John 15, 26. Let me look at that one real quick. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds 
from the Father, he shall testify of me. So again, using that personal pronoun, he, of the comforter, and speaking of action taken by the Holy Spirit. Um, and a bunch of these. It's awesome to read the Bible with this perspective, to be thinking about every time it talks about the Spirit, recognizing the pronouns used there and the actions that accompany it. The Spirit testifies about the Lord Jesus. The Spirit guides the disciples. He speaks and he discloses future events. He glorifies Christ. And I won't even go into all those verses, but all those actions are in Acts 8, Acts 20, Galatians 4, Romans 8. The Spirit also knows, and this is actually, we'll look at this in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses, uh, what is it, 10? 1 Corinthians, I have it on my notes, I don't know why I keep looking back. First Corinthians two and verse ten and eleven he says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man? which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. He's speaking of the Spirit as knowing all things. And so we see that the Spirit knows, that's an action that a person has to take, and he's omniscient. So being God, the Spirit is omniscient. And finally, the Spirit is sovereign in his rule of the church. And you can you recognize that passage in Acts 20 when he talks about appointing overseers and elders. But it says it's the Spirit that does that, that sets apart elders and overseers in the congregation. So I'm going to wrap that up here. I know I blew through that Holy Spirit stuff. But it's when you think about that, because again, the Jehovah's Witness and other false religions think of the Spirit as a force, not as a person. But as you read the New Testament and even Old Testament when it talks about the Spirit, it speaks of the, the Holy Spirit as taking action as it speaks of him with personal pronouns, and it clearly is indicating the personhood of the Spirit. We'll stop. I hope this was helpful. You got it all now? You want to read my notes? Came in right in the, in the last minute here. Okay, well, let's just go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, God, that you have come to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, as you have revealed the Father to us and the Holy Spirit, as you have guided us and filled us, and Lord, I just pray we would walk in the Spirit that we would not gratify the desires of the flesh, that we would be filled with, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, and we would know you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. God, we just love you. We thank you for this time together, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.